Welcome to a special Earth Day episode of the podcast. My name is Bruce Moe of Commonwealth Magazine, and today I'm joined by three business leaders who are focused on sustainability at their companies. Cynthia Curtis is the Senior Vice President of Sustainability at the commercial real estate firm JLL. Kyle Cahill is the Director of Corporate Responsibility at John Hancock. And Ted Saunders is Chief Sustainability Officer at the Saunders Hotel Group. Welcome to all of you. Thanks. Thank you. Glad to be here, Bruce. Kyle, let's start with you. Where do you think the business community is on sustainability? Is there broad buy-in or is it hit or miss by each company? It's a great question, Bruce. And I would say that uh, to a large degree, the private sector, particularly uh, in the Boston area, is uh, fairly far advanced in terms of sustainability. Certainly, it could vary by industries. Uh, at John Hancock, we tend to think about sustainability and climate change in three different parts of our business. We think about our operations and our people. We think about our products, services, and investments, and we think about our broader role in the community. And I think many companies who have been on this journey think about what's happening inside our four walls, uh, but also think about increasingly the broader public at large, uh, including the communities in which they operate. And Ted, um, why do you think the pursuit of sustainability uh, is catching on with businesses? Is it it doesn't seem like it would be a profitable undertaking, but I've read some of what you've written and you say it is. Uh, indeed. I think um, to me it's surprising that things haven't taken uh, a fast, there hasn't been a faster pace to, the, to, the, uh, to companies picking up these strategies. I think um, we're now seeing the, we're now at the point where when you go look at international business, even uh, at Davos, one of the top issues of any issue uh, that con that concerns uh, CEOs, international CEOs, is sustainability. So we're seeing it at the, the brightest and the best companies. And uh, we're a small company in a very big industry, service, the service, uh, uh, travel and tourism, excuse me, travel and tourism is the world's largest uh, service industry. And we're um, very proud to have been leading that, the charge since 1989 in terms of sustainability. But it seems to me that, um, and I've said this for years, and it's actually come true that you know hotels have so there's so many benefits to an approach uh, that is sustainable because it's good for business, it reduces waste, uh, employees feel good about it, and they stay longer and work harder, uh, and employees are attracted, uh, 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 and and guests are attracted to it, and and uh, are are very loyal. So it's it's got many many benefits in addition to the business benefits in addition to having a, um, a positive impact on the environment. Yeah, when I travel, which is not all that often, I, I notice more and more hotels, you guys probably travel a lot more than I do, say, you know, if you want, if you're concerned about the environment, maybe you just hang that towel and let it dry rather than throw it in on the floor and have it picked up. And it it's interesting you stand there going, after you towel off, you go, oh, you know, what should I do? <laughs> and it, it works, even psychologically. And I imagine that's what you're saying. It works for the company, too, because that reduces how many towels per day you have to dry, wash and dry, and what have you. So, yeah. And that's the tip of the proverbial iceberg, because there are so many things happening behind the scenes that the guest does not see, that you wouldn't see in a hotel uh, specifically, but um, in terms of energy efficiency, in terms of waste, um, food composting or the things that are really most visible are in the restaurants and 
right. uh, with organic foods and local produce and uh, um, recycling and that kind of thing, light bulbs, energy efficient light bulbs. And Cynthia, when um, you guys all, you have, corp, you have corporate responsibility in your title, but I know sustainability is a big focus of what you do. Um, in my mind, sustainability sort of means, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, means sort of you're trying to figure out a way that the business is sustainable over the long term without damaging the environment, without contributing to climate change. Maybe that's too sweeping, but how do you see what you do? What does that mean to be head of sustainability at a, at a very large company? Right. So, and, and JLL is a Fortune 500 company. We've got 90,000 employees around the world. Sustainability, we take a very broad look at that term. So, uh, you know, our, our definition is, y yes, it's about ensuring that the business is sustainable over the long term, but it's also about ensuring that the communities in which we live and work and, um, and our people who uh, support us and who work with us um, have opportunity uh, over the long term. It's about not... Um, it's about ensuring that we don't damage and we are the environment and we ensure that that uh, the resources that we use today will be available to those in future generations. So we do take a very broad look. Uh, it's um, it's our our communities, it's our workplaces, the the footprint that we have. It's what we can do with and through our clients. So we manage. 1,500 times the square footage that we ourselves occupy on behalf of our clients. So clearly our biggest impact and opportunity for impact is with and through our clients. Hmm. And uh, any one of you could take this question. I'm, I'm just sort of curious, do you see your job as sort of contained to your company or are you a partner with state and local government as they're doing things and do you need their officials help to do what you do or is it is it you do your thing they do their thing how, how does that inter inter start sure I think that's a great question and I think um, I, I think Ted and Cynthia would agree that for professionals who have been working in quote-unquote sustainability for many years I think there's been a lot of looks in the mirror lately because I think I mentioned before there's been quite a bit of progress progress we like to think around corporate sustainability but at the same time we're sort of aware of lack of progress on emissions reductions in climate, uh, the, the increasing income inequality, health issues, so on and so forth. So I think it's incumbent on all of us. Certainly you want to get your own house in order and that's, that's fine and, and do no harm is a good start. But for the magnitude of the challenges that we have ahead of us, it's incumbent on all of us to work together as, as private sector entities, whether it's through um, organizations like ELM or elsewhere, but also this idea of, of public-private partnering, working with civil society. I think we're fortunate in a lot of ways that Massachusetts is a state um, that not only leads on a lot of social and environmental issues, but also leads in terms of um, partnering in unique ways. So I, I'd say it's incumbent on all of us to look beyond our, our own businesses. Does, um, Ted, does uh, the state or local officials here in the Boston area, do they reach out to you occasionally to pick your brain about what they should be doing or is there any you know discussion back and forth along those lines I I would say they they sometimes reach out to us but we often go to the mountain as they as they as you would say um, I spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, advocating for strong environmental policies as a responsible business leader 
and our company uh, believes in that strongly. Um, we find that, you know, for a long time, legislators were only hearing from industry representatives and from businesses that said, if you pass this legislation or these policies, uh, it's going to be bad for business. We're going to have to lay off people and costs will go up and so. And um, so I think it's very important that businesses like us who are in the ELAM Corporate Council or with uh, ELM, let's, let's just make sure. Environmental was, League of Massachusetts, right. Corporate Council, uh, or Environmental Entrepreneurs, or the Alliance for Business Leadership. These are all great business groups, and there's a, there's a lot of well-known, as, as we see here at the table, well-known companies, uh, leading companies that are involved and willing to say, we're not just doing something in our own, you know, within our own four walls, as it were, but we're willing to advance uh, sound policy and advocate for sound policy because we know it's good for business in the long run. And Cynthia, it would seem like managing all this commercial real estate, that that would be a, like a direct connection because that's one area, uh, you know, building, heating, emissions, all that sort of stuff. That's one area where the state is trying to do better. Is there much give and take that you have with, with state officials or is there stuff that the state should be doing that would help you do what you're trying to accomplish? Well, I think, and as Ted said, you know, we we do advocate, um, but it, it's more of we will go forward. We we're not asked necessarily, um, but uh, you know, for us, it it is about protecting assets, the assets of our clients. How can we best do that? Well, resiliency, adaptation. Um, efficiencies, you know, our, our clients are interested in, of course, the bottom line. So what are the things that we can do to help them achieve that? And where can policy play a role in, in providing choice, right? And, and in helping set guardrails that we can work within and make greater investments in so that we can bring that to our clients, that those benefits to our clients. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's. Um, are there more things that that they can be doing? Absolutely. There's more things that we all can be doing. Um, at the base level, price on carbon. There's so many things that would flow from that. It's uh, more of a market-based approach, which is what we would prefer rather than a multitude of regulations, put a price on carbon and let that flow through various you know, initiatives and decisions. And Because at the end of the day, it's a business decision. Yeah, that seems to be an issue. Um, I've been on Beacon Hill for a number of years, and that seems to be an issue that initially was like, hmm, we're not going anywhere near that. But it is over the last, I would say, five years, it started to pick up a lot of steam. Mm -hmm. um, I think the governor, who is a Republican, is still a bit wary of, of anything that smacks of higher prices that might people would be very visible to people. But, but even he is talking about um, what they call Reggie on transportation fuels. And so that would drive up the price of that of fuel based on carbon content to a certain degree. Um, and so I, it still isn't quite there yet. And I got to say that maybe some of, maybe not your colleagues, but other colleagues in the business community, like you said, Ted, 
have resisted that whole notion of putting a. Um, so it's interesting that you do all three well, of you support it's, that. Well, it, it, it you know yes, it, it all so. depends on how it's rolled out. Right. Right. It is is it just this flat tax that is you know it's there are a variety of of. Um, you know, it's all in the details. Yeah. Right? How's it going to be rolled out? I'm not sitting here suggesting that all of my uh, colleagues would be in support of it, but uh, but it's it is it's the devil in the details. Yeah. 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 And I, I would say, Bruce, and, and you mentioned it, their pr- pricing carbon. One option is is a tax. Uh, you mentioned Reggie, which is which is a price on carbon, and that's been quite successful. The Transportation and Climate Initiative, which seems to be modeled. Theoretically, on what's happened with Reggie, um, you know, we, we came out in support of Governor Baker's leadership of that last year. Um, that that seems quite promising as well. And you know, I think the, the one of the challenges for Hancock as a global organization is that, you know, we operate in Canada. There's already a carbon pricing scheme there. It varies between some provinces. Uh, carbon pricing is about to be enacted uh, uh, nationally in China. Um, nationally here, those conversations aren't, aren't as far along. And so I think generally the, the concept for sure of pricing that externality, pricing that pollution, which is causing so many future costs and current costs that aren't being accounted for, um, is, is something that um, as a financial institution um, is, is quite appealing. But I think to, uh, to Cynthia's point, what, what is the exact way of doing it and sort of what is the scheme that's being proposed? Mm-hmm. Um, Ted, do you... Do you think, well, let me ask you, what do you, what kind of grade would you give Beacon Hill in terms of addressing climate change? Would you, would you say they're doing, Kyle sort of seemed to think Massachusetts was maybe a cut above the rest of the nation a little bit and, or more progressive in, in addressing these things. Do you see it that way? I, I do, um, with a caveat, though. I think that uh, the U.S. is far behind some other places in the world. So while Mass is leading uh, on a national level, we, ha- we can have higher aspirations. We all know that uh, the, the challenges that we face are not, I mean, the, the old thinking is that it was 100 years from now and, mm. and maybe, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're seeing with the National Climate Assessment and the, and the, uh, uh, the International, uh, 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 the IPCC report, that um, we are in, we have basically, you know, 10 years to really dramatically change the way we use energy, the way we use transportation, uh, not only in this country, but around the world. So uh, we need bold leadership. I think bold leadership, I, and I, I think we all should be proud of that Massachusetts leads the nation in a lot of categories and energy efficiency and education and so forth. Um, but we're not where we need to be in order to, to meet the challenges that the science scientists say we are facing. And there's broad consensus. There's more consensus about climate change than cigarette smoking in terms of its cause on, on it's been studied more. It's, it's just, uh, it's, an, it's, it's understood in every country, uh, even some countries that are really, um, you know, far behind us uh, in terms of our development, that, uh, that, that this is something that needs to be de- dealt with and de- dealt with aggressively and, and uh, forcefully at, at in a in current time, not something that we can just wait because it's only going to get more expensive to to deal with these issues and the problems are going to get bigger. What would be one thing you would recommend to people on Beacon Hill that we should be doing? That well, we aren't I think doing you're here? I think you're right that that uh, that uh, the price on carbon 
whether it's a, a fee and rebate or whatever you want to call it, is semantics as far as I'm concerned. It, devil is in the details, as Cynthia said. But uh, that is a, it's not a silver bullet, but it is a silver buckshot in terms of being able to facilitate all of these other changes that need to happen because it sends strong market signals to all the right people in terms of investment, in terms of uh, business, um, that uh, this is the new reality. We're in a, we're in a carbon-constrained world now, and uh, China knows this. They're doing much more than the United States in a, a lot of things um, when, with auto emissions and, and so forth. But um, I think we need to recognize that this is the, the urgency that we need to, to recognize as business people, as consumers, um, as politicians is paramount, and um, we're not going to get there if we if we don't take a bold vision and a bold vision at the state level. And we can all be proud of where we are now, but uh, given the scale of the of the uh, the challenges that we face, we need a bolder vision, which then can embolden, if you will, all of the businesses. Because once it becomes some com common, you know, the con conventional wisdom, mm -hmm. everyone will get behind it and like. You know, I, I used to go to uh, the American Hotel and Lodging, Lodging Association in the early days when they had an environmental committee, and people would roll their eyes when I talked about this stuff. And 10 years later, uh, they were all bragging about their latest initiative in terms of renewable energy or composting and so So there really can be a sea change um, if, the, if you have the right setting for it. And Kyle, do you have anything you would recommend, like a specific policy that state leaders should be pursuing uh, that you think would be helpful maybe spurring action in the business community and, and, and across the state? It's a great question. I, I agree uh, with, with Ted. I mean, I think there, there are really three areas that won't come as a huge surprise. It, it's our, our buildings, it's transportation, and I also think it's um, our, our resilience and infrastructure um, to things like sea level rise. And, uh, you know, in, ter in terms of buildings, um, we have a very old stock of buildings here in, in the state, particularly Boston, and I think buildings are probably close to 50% of our emissions. So what are the policy mechanisms that can really enable the urgent and rapid um, change and efficiency retrofits that Ted mentioned that need to happen, frankly, and, and, and how can um, perhaps the private sector help in, in financing those? Um, in terms of transportation, we've seen uh, recently New York City looking at congestion pricing. We've all heard recently how Boston now has the honor of having the worst rush hour traffic in the country. Um, I haven't seen those conversations go very far on the Hill, but um, you know the idea of less fewer cars, more public transportation, more biking, I think would, would help not only in terms of climate, but health as well. And then we, we saw Marty Walsh, Mayor Walsh, um, with some really um, b bold ambition around resilience in the waterfront, both gray and green infrastructure. And that's not a Boston issue alone. And we all know that all these towns are connected. So I think it's incumbent on the state and the city to try to work together to enable investment in that infrastructure as well. Um, and that, that, that's a real challenge because investing in um, something like a building or investing in um, proper um, sewer drainage, rebuilding that, the, the, the more industrial, traditional infrastructure projects is very financeable, but when you're talking about wetlands and you're talking about parks, no one's really figured out, you know, what are the revenue streams that come from uh, an investment like a traditional infrastructure investment would bring? And so I think that um, people really need to put their heads together if Boston 
will prepare itself for, you know, I hate to say the next Sandy, but whatever else is to come. So um, I'm, a, I'm a little curious about a, where you guys stand on a, what has become sort of a litmus test issue on Beacon Hill. Uh, many in the business community would like to see more natural gas pipeline infrastructure into the region because at certain times of the year, we don't have enough natural gas to power the power plants that we have because when it's very cold, most of that gas is going for heating. And so the prices skyrocket of electricity and what have you. Um, but it's almost become, uh, you know, a test of what, where you stand on this issue because there's a logical argument to adding a pipeline coming into the region to make sure there's plentiful gas, and gas is relatively cheap right now in the United States. But a lot of environmentalists say that's the wrong way to go because that just will build a pipeline that will last 20 years and will, will continue to rely on fossil fuels. Do you guys, have you guys thought about this? Do you have any position on that, uh, what, what you think should be done? Uh, speaking as, um, as a private citizen sure. and not as representing, because I haven't spoken with folks at JLL about this, but, but, but personally, um, I'm not in favor of additional pipelines, and um, although recognizing fully that um, you know we, we need to be able to meet the energy requirements, we have I don't know how many miles of existing pipeline that leaks massively. And so we're just pumped. There's, there's a tremendous amount of loss that is our, that, that's going through our current pipelines. So rather than build yet another pipeline and bring more gas in, I would be an advocate. I am an advocate for plugging the holes. Right. I, I mean, there's a cost mm -hmm. associated with that as well, but, but deal with what you have. I mean, it's very much similar, you know, to an infrastructure type, you know, we're, we're in our building here in Boston, in my JLL building, we are, um, we're taking a whole retrofit, as Kyle mentioned about uh, buildings, you know, being a, a significant source of greenhouse gas emissions. And it, the building had, it's, you know, from the skin and the inside, we're doing a tremendous renovation. And the building had never been LEED certified. It had no certification. Well, we're, we're, taking that step. There's a cost associated with that. We're not doing it for building bling. We're doing it because <laughs> it makes good business sense. So, and likewise, when I look at the investments that have been made historically into the existing pipeline, fix them, as opposed to bringing in yet another. Right, right. Anybody else? I think, uh, I think what Cynthia says makes a lot of sense in terms of the inefficiency of the current system. And the entrenched interests want to do things the way that they've been done. I mean, we've got a new fuel, but it's still a sunken cost into a you know, 20 or 30 year infrastructure that I don't think anyone's going to want to pay for 10 years from now, 20 years from now, in terms of ratepayers. Um, there's no reason that we shouldn't be investing heavily in renewables. Um, we, sp we, spend, we spend, I don't know what the figure is off the top of my head, but it's, it's many, many millions of dollars that we send out of state because we're at the end of the, mm. the pipeline. So whatever fuel we're buying, fossil fuel we're buying, we're sending money out of the state. Why wouldn't we keep that money in the state where we have all sorts of solar and wind resources and can invest those dollars locally, create jobs and so forth. And um, it just, to me, it makes sense 
as a strategic issue, something that the state should be looking at in terms of a vision for the state. Being a leader in this makes a lot more sense than investing in what is really a, a 19th century technology. And Kyle, um, I wondered if you could sort of sum up a little bit and feel free to, everybody else, feel free to chime in. But uh, we talked a little bit about various business groups. ELM is uh, might have one point of view and certain companies are associated with that. There are other business groups out there that might have a different uh, approach to some of these issues. What kind of debate, is there any broader debate going on in the business community out there about about this, or is it everybody sort of going into their camps, if you will, and and we're going to see maybe you guys will keep gaining adherence and they'll lose, or or how does how does that work? Or so with, how do you see it working? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> without a doubt, there's a growing expectation that companies lend their voice and influence on important social and environmental issues. Employees care about it customers care about it, the general public cares about it. I think in terms of um, as the, the, the increase in, in pressure to do that rises, there will always be um, across a range of issues, there could always be disagreements between a corporate perspective on an issue and a business, uh, uh, existing business coalition's perspective on an issue. And so I think it's incumbent on, on companies, and I think the conversation is, is happening uh, within organizations to um, dig into those issues that companies feel very compelled to lend a voice to and to advocate for, um, and look across the organizations that they might already uh, be members of and see if there's opportunities to engage with those organizations to talk about those issues, or um, weighing the risk benefit of publicly being in disagreement um, across those issues. So, you know, one of the things I've, I, I think I'm seeing in Massachusetts, though, is, is, is much more of an effort from organizations that perhaps in the past might be advocating for different policies to, um, at a minimum, come together and see if what are those opportunities, say, around climate change where they do share a unique, uh, uh, an aligned perspective on um, whether it's renewables or something else and, and coming together and not always sort of butt heads, but also look for opportunities to actually have a shared voice on an issue. So you see that actually happen? I mean, I don't really see that publicly happening, but you see it behind the scenes happening? Yeah, I do. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Well, on that note, I'm going to bring it to the end here. And I want to thank our guest, Cynthia Curtis of the commercial real estate firm JLL, Kyle Cahill, Director of Corporate Responsibility at John Hancock and Ted Saunders, Chief Sustainability Officers at the, Officer at the Saunders Hotel Group. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thank you and happy Thanks, Earth Bruce. Day. <laughs> Thank you. Same yes. to you. Happy Earth Day. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>